0: Father, as for the night that we have before us in this study, we pray that you would be with us as well as we teach and as we listen and learn. The Holy Spirit active in all of us for that purpose. We pray that the words on, on the page before us, Father, would not merely be uh, nuggets of knowledge or trivia that we would take away and, and simply take pride in knowing but they would be. Uh, Father, the words of life to each of us, they would guide our footsteps as, to, as a lamp to our feet, Father. They would be words that would uh, be in our hearts in all that we do so that as we come to decisions or as we come to dilemmas in our life, Father, we would have these words to fall back on, to know the truth and to understand your desire and heart and purpose for us and then we would live according to it. And uh, perhaps more than anything, Father, we pray that it would stir us to great works in your name so that the world might know you through us. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are just beginning in, or just ending, I guess, chapter twenty. Now, I I don't know many of you, not many of you, have been in my Revelation study in the years past when I've taught it. I haven't taught it in quite some time. I, in fact, I was thinking that recently. It's been this has probably been the longest gap I've had in time since the between events. I taught Revelation three times, and it's been now two years since I have taught it. And I, I mention it, though, because I was famous in, in the way I taught it for leaving you with a cliffhanger every week. That was kind of the style, was and make sure you wanted to come back. I, I had to leave you wondering how it was going to end every week. Well, I haven't done that as much in Luke, but last week I did. I, I, maybe intentionally, maybe not, but we left last week at the, toward the end of chapter 20 with a bit of a cliffhanger. We had been studying how Jesus in the temple, in the day before he was to go to the cross was being inspected by all the major leadership divisions within the nation of Israel. We identified them as the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. Each of those groups uh, essentially represented a major portion of the leadership of the nation of Israel. And the reason they were involved in this inspection process was because of fulfillment of Scripture. We said that Jesus as the Passover Lamb, this being the week of Passover in Jerusalem, was going to live out, act out, all the requirements of a true Passover sacrifice to include this inspection period. Under the law, it was required that the family who was going to sacrifice a lamb during Passover would first bring this lamb into their own home for several days, four days. And during that time, the lamb was to be inspected to make sure it was spotless, that it was without fault, so that on the day when it was sacrificed under the Passover, it would truly be an appropriate sacrifice, a faultless, spotless lamb. Jesus, as the Passover Lamb of God, was undergoing a similar kind of inspection. In this case, the inspection was done on behalf of the nation of Israel by his leadership, by these four groups. And their inspection of Christ was for the purpose of finding fault in him as an individual. Now, you know that they were all motivated to find fault, so they were doing their very best to find fault. And you also know that Jesus, as Scripture tells us, was without sin. So they weren't going to find fault, for there was none. What's interesting about chapter 20, though, is the process they went through to try to do it and the way Jesus defended himself in each case. We've looked at three of the four groups so far, the last now being the Sadducees. So tonight, as we go back into the text, I'll reread some of the verses that we introduced last week, and then we'll go into the exposition of that text. So last week, as we read last, uh, uh, the last part of chapter 20, verses 27 through 33, that's where we're going to pick up again tonight. So let's reread from that point. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children, Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And we stop there and we're going to look now at what's going on with this question. We'll begin again by noting that the Sadducees here have this one distinguishing characteristic that really defined them to a large degree as a separate Uh, political or or religious entity within the nation of Israel. And that distinguishing characteristic was the one that Luke mentions here, resurrection, or the fact that they did not believe that resurrection occurred. Uh, Let's be clear on what we mean by that word, by resurrection. I often find, or I occasionally find, Christians who think that the promise that we have in Christ to be resurrected is a promise that means we will one day come back to life, meaning that there's a period of time when we're dead, perhaps without even a, conscience, a conscious awareness of what's going on. But at some point, God brings us back to a, a conscious state. They never really think beyond that point. They never really consider what that means. They, they see it almost in a Hollywood way, where Hollywood projects the death. Have you ever seen this, particularly in a cartoon? The body dies. Now, the body's lying on the ground. What do you see happen next? The spirit floats up from the body, right, and then goes up to heaven. Now, there is some truth in that. Scripture tells us that to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord, which means that at the moment our physical body dies, our spirit does continue to exist and does go to a place uh, where the Lord is, in this case, in heaven, meaning in God's throne room. That's the place that Christ resides now, so that's where we would go to be with him. But that's only half the story. Scripture goes on to give us a much better understanding of what would happen in that next age for those who are resurrected. And the story is that we will be reunited with a new body. It is not sufficient to say that we die and our spirit goes into heaven. That's, that's half the story. What resurrection literally means is a body coming back to life. Remember, Lazarus was resurrected. That, that means his body came back to life. Jesus himself, of course, being resurrected, was in a body again. Likewise, for you and I, and frankly for all human, human beings who have ever lived, regardless of whether they were believers in the one true God or not, we'll all be resurrected. They will all return into a new body. They will all come back to life, not just spiritually, but also physically. And that's the situation, that's the issue at hand here. The Sadducees are a group of people within the nation of Israel who did not believe that death was followed by a literal resurrection of a new physical body. Their view is like the cartoon. The spirit leaves the body, the body is going into the ground, and never again does that spirit need a body. It remains a spirit forever. That was their view. Some in the Sadducee world had even gone to the next step of, lo- of, of, of assuming nihilism, which means that the body ceases to exist and the spirit ceases to exist. We cease to exist. There is nothing more after death. That would be sort of an extreme view within that uh, mindset. It was because of that view that they brought this question to Jesus. And by the way, I should mention the Sadducees had other differences of opinion from the rest of the religious uh, sects of Israel. For example, they didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe that there was a devil or that demons existed. They didn't believe in angels. And we said, I think, last week that this group had somewhat of a liberal view in, in comparison to, say, the Pharisees. If you look at it on a political spectrum... The Sadducees would have been more of a liberal-leaning group within the nation of Israel's political spectrum. But I don't want you to get the impression that that would mean that they are in any way uh, lawless or that they don't have a respect for law and order. In fact, the contrary was true. They had a very strict view of law and order. They had a very strict view out of the Old Testament. Well, the Pharisees said, I believe strictly in the law, but in order to protect the law, I'm going to create all these additional rules around the law so that you have to be very strict in your behavior to avoid breaking the law. The Sadducees said, no, I don't agree with that. I don't want to add anything to the Old Testament at all. So they liked the Old Testament in its purest form, But they kind of went to the other extreme and got so pure that they eliminated anything that they couldn't understand with perfection. So they eliminated angels, they eliminated demons, they eliminated resurrection. They kind of stripped it down to something so simple and bare that it was no longer truth. So their, their distortion was sort of the opposite distortion of the Pharisees. While the Pharisees distorted by adding rules, the Sadducees distorted by removing stuff that they didn't agree with or understand. By the way, the Sadducees held the majority on the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day, so they were actually the ruling party. So they had a particular interest in defending their point of view because they were in the majority at the time. So in their attempt to discredit Christ in this moment, they come in, politically speaking, with the majority rule, with an interest in holding on to that perspective, and with an interest in showing up Christ to be wrong because they largely see him as aligned with Pharisees. Now, Jesus never would have said that, of course. But from their perspective, they knew Jesus agreed with resurrection. They heard Jesus teach about the resurrection of the righteous to come, or about the resurrection of the unrighteous. They had seen him represent the resurrection in parables. They had, taught, they, they had heard him teaching, basically, that resurrection was true. The Pharisees believed in resurrection. Therefore, they saw him as aligned with the Pharisees in their mind. So their interest in discrediting him was because they saw him as aligned with their political enemies. So remember we've talked at all times here about how each group had their beef with Christ. Pharisees didn't like him because he wouldn't agree to all their extra rules. The Herodians didn't like him because they wanted someone who would align themselves with Rome and they thought as a new king coming into Israel he would be against Rome. That put him at odds with the Herodians. The scribes didn't like him because the scribes were really aligned with the Pharisees in many respects. And now we have the Sadducees. Everybody had a beef with him. Everybody had reason to discredit him. The, what they're trying to do here is show him up as being foolish. And this was the principal technique of the, of the Sadducees. They try to devise a question so hard to answer that as you stumble about trying to figure it out and answer it, you look foolish in the process. It's something like I've heard done in our day when people would say, "Can God? is God so powerful that he can make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? If you haven't heard that question, well, think about it for a moment, you'll realize what kind of silliness that would provoke. Oh, yes, he's, he's powerful enough to do that. Well, if he's so powerful, why couldn't he lift the rock? Well, no, no, he's not so powerful. Well, if he's not, then why can't he make a rock that big? You know, you just kind of tumble people around in that kind of a, a silly, pointless question. In this case, they're, they're asking a question that up to this point, no one had been able to answer satisfactorily, not to them or really not to anyone else. And here's how this particular one worked. They've devised or contrived a situation so technically uh, tenuous or or technically uh, tricky that if resurrection were actually true, you'd have to have an answer to this question in order to see a possibility for resurrection to actually happen and not create a mess of things in the next world. Now, why is this situation possible? Well, this is an extreme example of the Levirate marriage rule under the law, under the law of Moses. This comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. And the principle is, is, is pretty simple, actually. It was so important in Jewish culture for men to have an heir, to have their tribe and their lineage as a family continue because of the Abrahamic covenant, that if a man were to marry and die before he could, he could sire a, a male heir then the law provided for his widow to have another chance, to get a second chance at having that heir, having that son to carry on the deceased man's name. And the way the law provided for that was that the oldest unmarried brother of the deceased man would take that widow as his wife now and would sire a child with that wife and the first male born to that marriage would not be his son. Legally, the first male born in that Leberite marriage would actually be considered the son of the man who had died. He would take that man's name. He would receive that man's inheritance. The line of that man would continue through this child. But he would be raised by essentially his uncle. And that's the legal, and it would be a legally binding heir of the dead man. But of course, in the example they contrived, the second brother or the brother of the deceased dies before there's any children. So that would still require under the Leverite rule that the next oldest brother now fulfill the obligation. So on it went, down seven brothers, each dying before there was a child, the next one being obligated to take over in the place of the previous until you reach the point where there's no brothers left and then the wife dies too. So now you're in heaven, resurrected, as the Sadducees presented it. You've got a woman with seven men around her, and they all are legally married to her. Now in this age, in this world, the Levirate marriage process presents no problems because the next marriage never can take place unless the first one is dissolved by death. So you're never in a conundrum. There's never a point of, of two marriages existing at the same moment. But now that we're resurrected and we're all together again, the principle now is you got a real mess of things if you've been allowed to stay in that state. Because think about this, what about a case where you had two people who each had marriages and then are widowed and then the widows marry and then at some later point one of them dies and then that remaining widow marries a second time and they all end up in heaven. Now you've got people who are married to two or three different people all traced together over, you know, you can see the mess that would, in their minds, in the Sadducees' mind, this is the mess that would result if resurrection were true. And although you don't have to know that this ever really did happen, just the mere fact that it's possible would present a conundrum to them. It would suggest that resurrection can't be true because God would be permitting this kind of a mess to be possible in heaven. How could, that have possibly be, uh, how could God possibly allow that? Therefore, resurrection can't be true. That's the conclusion. So the point in asking this question, by the way, is not because they want an answer. It's not that the Sadducees really expect Christ to come up with an answer, solve their problem... And then they can go away happy. That's not the point in this exercise. Their point is to see him struggle, not answer it, look foolish, be discredited, and then they've achieved what they want. They've found fault with him, if you will. Because remember, the true Messiah should not have any struggle in this regard. A true Messiah, if he were the true Messiah, should be able to address any issue. Think of it back to chapter 7. Remember Simon the Pharisee when he invited Christ into his home to have a, a meal on the Sabbath? And he's at the table and there's the prostitute comes in behind and is crying and wetting his feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. And what does Simon think? Remember, the woman's behind Christ because he's reclining with his feet behind him. She can't see her. Simon knows he can't see her. Jesus can just feel what's going on. And he, as, Pharisee, as the Pharisees looking at this uh, curb in front of him, he starts to smile and say to himself, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know who it is that's washing his feet meaning he wouldn't be letting a prostitute touch him if he knew she was a prostitute. Therefore, he's saying, I don't believe you're a true prophet or you would know better. And Jesus knows his thoughts and then says to him, who has more to forgive? Who who would love me more rather? The one who's had a lot forgiven or the one who's had very little forgiven? You may know the story by now if if I've given you enough to remember it. The point is, it's the same thinking going on here. Simon did not consider Jesus a prophet because a true prophet would have known what was going on. Well, Jesus did know what was going on. It just didn't bother him. In this case, the Sadducees are saying a true Messiah, a true prophet, would know how to answer a question like this. More importantly, a true prophet would know that resurrection wasn't true. But because you think it's true, and because you're going to struggle to try to answer this question, you'll be shown to be someone less than a prophet, someone less than the Messiah. That's the way this trap was intended to work. If you were to look at Matthew and Mark's account of this same moment, and you look at the way Jesus addresses the uh, problem that's put to him, you learn something interesting that Luke chose to leave out. And it's important enough that I need to mention it because it sets up the rest of the answer. In Matthew and Mark's account, Luke is recorded as beginning his response with a comment that he says, they are mistaken, meaning these Sadducees, are mistaken about the nature of resurrection because of two things. Because they don't know Scripture and because they don't know the power of God. Those two fundamental mistakes on their part have led them to be misunderstanding the nature of resurrection. They didn't understand what Scripture taught on the issue of resurrection. You know, it's ironic when you consider that these were the men who led Israel. These were the men who the nation of Israel looked up to as the experts in the very thing he says they don't know. When is it that you test someone to know whether the job they hold, they qualify to hold? Because that's what's implied here. By the fact that he would say you don't know Scripture... Talking to the men whose job, effectively, it was to know Scripture and then teach it suggests that they were not being put to the test in any meaningful way by anyone who did know Scripture so as to reveal their their lack of knowledge about Scripture. It makes me wonder about how often we live under the same circumstances and don't know it or aren't aren't concerned about it. Secondly, he says, they don't realize that all the all God was capable of doing. They had... They had limited God's power in their own minds so as to produce this problem for themselves. They had assumed, specifically, that the nature of a resurrected body was going to be limited to simply being a carbon copy of what we have here today. They had made the assumption that resurrection meant what I'm going to get is just like I've got. It's just a carbon copy. We just start all over again. That was the assumption they had made. They had made that assumption because they didn't understand the power of God. And by the way, built into that assumption is that our life and the relationships we have that we have in this age are just going to repeat and carry over into the next world. And that perspective is not consistent with what Scripture says and that perspective is not, uh, does not uh, give enough credit to God's power to do differently, to do otherwise, to do greater than, to do more. It occurs to me here that Jesus' answer to them in this moment, as he introduces it here with that statement, that's an answer we could pull out and use in a lot of circumstances we face today in the church when we look at people who are teaching wrongly or living wrongly or making bad assumptions about what it means to be a Christian and how to live that life. People who would cling to false doctrine or who would refuse to accept sound teaching. Uh, people who are attracted to an unhealthy church and stay in that church despite what they see going on or but despite the fact that it's, it's harming them or their family. Or people who are just sucked into a false gospel altogether wherever it occurs people who find themselves in that kind of circumstance, whether they're the victim of it or whether they're the, uh, the one who is perpetrating it, in most cases we can address that problem in the same way Jesus did here. You don't know Scripture and you don't understand the power of God. And because of those two fundamental flaws, you're not in the place where you know the truth. All of these people, all of those issues I just mentioned and the one we're studying here in Scripture, they are all the product fundamentally, ultimately, of a lack of the knowledge of Scripture. You ever heard the statement, a little knowledge is a bad thing or a dangerous thing? little knowledge is a dangerous thing? What would a little knowledge look like in the Christian faith? Maybe what 80 or 90% of Christians walking around actually have? A little knowledge? I mean, fundamentally, we all lack perfect knowledge, so you could say that about all of us. But, but in the sense of being dangerous in our own walk and in our witness... I would tell you that it's probably the case that most Christians, if put on the spot to live out or teach according to Scripture, would be dangerous in that position. And Maybe you're thinking that of me right now, and justifiably so. But it's because of that problem that we then see all the other issues that are so common and endemic of the church. The fundamental problem is we don't know Scripture. Therefore, the fundamental solution is no more Scripture. Understand God's Word better. And secondly, we don't understand the power of God. Uh, I think there's a view that I've run into time and time again where they, people view God as sort of this cosmic air traffic controller or uh, like a, a passive observer, like a wildlife photographer. You know, I don't want to actually interact with the world. I just want to watch it and monitor it. Or I, I interact with it, but it's only in the sense of kind of directing traffic that's already got its own You know, I kind of move things a little here and there, but otherwise it's all kind of got its own path already and it's on its way and I don't have to touch it. You know, that kind of a thought? Rather than what Scripture provides, which is that the power of God is such that nothing occurs in this world but by God's providence and desire. Not one thing. Not even Adam's sin in the garden occurred, but that God knew it, was prepared for it, and made it a part of a larger plan. That is not the same thing as saying that God in some way created Adam's sin, in the case of Adam, or yours, or mine, But it is also not true to say he had nothing to do with the activity or did not have any way to plan around it or anticipate it or deal with it. it. It is not the same thing as saying he was passive. It just means that he took into account sin when his plan was put into place before the foundations of earth. And his plan accommodates it and prepares for it and deals with it and corrects for it and makes use of it. God is not passive in any sense. So if these people were truly to study and understand, understand Scripture, they would have an answer to their own problem. Now, when, he gives, when Christ gives His actual answer to their question, I want you to take note. He reverses the order of the problems. He stated in Matthew and in Mark, you don't know Scripture and you don't know the power of God, He answers them in reverse order. He explains the power of God, and then He explains Scripture. All right. So we're going to look first here at how they lack, they lack an appreciation of the true power of God. That comes in verses 34 and in 35. Jesus says that while we are married in this age, meaning the age of our earthly body, we are in marriage or we are given into marriage. But the resurrected body, he says, does not enter into marriage. And the reason for this stems from the nature of marriage itself and from the nature of the resurrected body. So let's talk at those individually. First, marriage. Marriage, we're told out of Genesis, is the reuniting of flesh. The reuniting of flesh. Where did woman come from in the garden? Adam's flesh. The marriage of Adam and woman together in the garden was the reuniting of two flesh back to one. And the two shall become one flesh because of their original state being one with Adam's body originally. I'm not diminishing woman, of course, as an independent uh, a child of God in any sense. I'm speaking here about theologically, when God created woman, He chose to do it in such a way that they would then again be in united in marriage. Man and woman would then again be united in marriage. So, marriage was about reuniting flesh. It's also about, obviously, the fact that woman was to be a helper. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it was one flesh, again, brought together. The resurrected body, on the other hand, will be uniquely created. All men and women of all time who are going to be the saints resurrected into heaven will all have been created already. There is not a sequential creation process. The resurrections occur all at once. There is a joint resurrection. We're all there at the same moment. In the case of the church, it happens at the rapture. In the case of the Old Testament saints, it happens at the end of tribulation. But in any event, we're talking about a mass single moment in which resurrections occur. Since we all show up at the same time, we're not talking here about a need for marriage because we're not talking about a need to procreate in order to form those bodies. In this age, bodies are created out of the procreation of a marriage and they come in a sequential way. My children couldn't come until I came into the world and I couldn't come into the world until my parents came into the world. But in the resurrection, all these bodies that God is going to create for the purpose of living together in a resurrected state, He puts them all together and creates them all at the same moment. There's no need for marriage because his plan is such that all who are going to be there show up at the same time on day one. So if you were destined, if you were one, he says, was worthy of attaining to that resurrection, then you'll be there on day one, not on day 10, not on day 50, not on day 2000. You're all there on day one. There is no more to create. So there's no more need for creation out of marriage. So the procreation of this life brought about through a marriage relationship is not necessary in heaven because there's not going to be new babies made for the purpose of living in that age. We all arrive on day one. Secondly, marriage in terms of the relationship itself, the fact that Adam needed to not be alone, that he needed a helper, all of that, we don't have that need in heaven either because as as scripture tells us, we are now there to serve They'll have the, 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 the living God at the throne. Revelation tells us that in chapter 22. And in this new form, to live eternally and to be with him eternally and serving him eternally means that there's no point now in a marriage relationship in terms of a helper. We are there to serve God. We are not in need of help ourselves in the same way that Adam was on earth. So if the point of marriage was procreation and the support structure of a, of a marriage of a spouse helping another... Those two purposes have no longer no longer have a relevance in heaven. Therefore, the marriage itself doesn't have relevance in heaven. So marriage was not an end in itself. It was a means to an end. And those ends are already been met. They're not needed in heaven. Therefore, marriage is not needed in heaven. If they had understood the power of God, they would have understood that the purpose in marriage itself was to support the structure of life here on earth and that structure is not repeated in heaven. We don't need to worry about it there. Then in verse 36, Christ moves a little further in this discussion of the power of God when he talks about the nature of the resurrected body itself. Jesus says that the resurrected sons of God will not be able to die, but they will be like angels. Now this is an especially pointed comment, of course, because Jesus knew that the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. Because we can, In fact, we're getting an even better idea of what he's saying here about the power of God in this next stage by looking at a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, his first letter, because Paul goes into an, ex, uh, an extended discussion about the power of God in the context of resurrection to a group of people who, in Corinth, had exactly the same mistaken view that Sadducees have. Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, and an element within the Corinthian church had started to think the same thing. So, Paul wrote them this. If you have a moment, it's worth turning. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because we'll look at this just for a moment. This is is where we really get to the heart of the issue of the power of God in the context of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Paul says this. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Now, he's not saying that they're asking this question legitimately. He's not saying that there are people who have legitimate questions. He's saying there are people who mock the idea of resurrection. Just like the Sadducees did. Remember, they, their question is not being asked because they really want an answer. Their question is being asked to mock Christ. Similarly, Paul's dealing with people who were asking the question because they were mocking the very idea of resurrection. And you know that by looking at the next verse. After he ans- asks the question, then he asks, answers it. He says, you fool. Well, you don't say that to someone who's asking a fair question. You say it to people who are mocking you. Who are, who are saying they don't believe in it. He says, You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as He wishes, to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now, stopping there for a moment. This is a wonderful picture of resurrection. He says, and He's teaching here on the power of God. The same issue that Christ is dealing with to the Sadducees. He says, When you take a seed and you store it in the ground so that it would produce a plant, have you ever looked at the seed of a plant next to the actual plant itself? If you had two in your hand, you looked at them, they look nothing alike. You know, if you weren't a farmer, I could probably, if you would never been on a farm, never seen plants growing in a garden, I could probably take five or six different kinds of plants or vegetables and show you the plant up here and then take five or six seeds in my hand and say, which seed goes with which plant? You probably have a hard time knowing, except that you might have known it from your kids, your childhood or from farming. But if you had never seen it before, you'd never know. They look nothing alike. And his point is, how does this turn into that? This has to die first, meaning... I have to bury it in the ground, giving a picture of the burial of a body. I have to take this seed and I put it into the ground as if it had died. And yet out of that death comes this plant that looks nothing like the original. And when that happens, you and I look at it and go, big deal. You're not surprised by it. You don't question if it's possible. You're not amazed by it, though maybe we should be. You just take it for granted. And then someone comes along and says, and you know what? Not only does that work... But if I take your human body and I put it in the ground, God has the power to bring it back to life in a completely new form with greater power than you had before, with all kinds of wonderful changes from what you had started with. And you look at me and you say, God can't do that. That's crazy talk. And he says, you're willing to accept the seed going into a ground, turning into this gigantic tree or plant that looked nothing like the original seed and just say it's no big deal? But I tell you that God can do the same thing with a human body and you act like it's crazy talk. He says, you fool. You're limiting the power of God by the constraints of your own mind. What kind of God is that? Especially when His own world, te- His own word tells you that's what He does. Then He goes on. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the, one, of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. His point is kind of expanding now from just the point of the seed. Now he moves out to the outer world and he says, and, and if you're so bothered by the fact that I can take your body and if I'm God and turn it into a different kind of body, if that blows your mind, just look outside your window. He makes you, and then he turns around and makes a platypus. Then he turns around and makes a brine shrimp. And then he turns around and makes the sun and the moon. I mean, if you can't get more diverse than that, then why are you so bothered by the prospect that he can take your earthly body and make a a different kind of body for you in the next life? There's nothing fundamentally objectionable about that possibility in light of what we've already seen him do. It's perfectly consistent with what we've already seen him do. All right? Now he makes, I think, the most important argument of all. He goes to the next step and he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body and it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a living, a life-giving spirit. However, the spirit is not first, but the, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly." He starts by making the comparison to the seed. Just like the seed is sown in the ground and comes up a different form, so will we. And look at some of the uh, pieces of what we get to learn about this new body as he explains it there. He says, the first is buried in dishonor or in shame, referring to our sinful condition, the body's sinful condition that we all have with us even now, that will be with us until this body dies. By the way, that's an important reminder. God, God's plan for humanity does not include fixing this container. The container you have now for your spirit, the thing we call the flesh, the body, no plan for God to fix it. He's, he's given up on it. It's contaminated. It's sinful. There's no fixing it. All you can do is replace it. So it's, it's you know, like a car that's been in a wreck. Forget that one. I'm buying a new one. That's basically what he said. So this body is going to be replaced. There's no attempt by God to fix it. Now you talk about sanctification as a process of becoming more holy, more righteous in our daily living. But that is not a process of fixing the body. It is about a spiritual process, a growing of our spirit into a Christ-like form, a process that ultimately completes upon glorification, which is the process of resurrecting us into a new body. All right. The second body, we are told, will be raised in glory, in contrast to how it went into the ground, without sin, in other words. The first, we're told, is buried in weakness, but our new body will have power. And that's a fascinating statement. It isn't built out in any depth or detail. But the fact is that whatever you suffer in now in terms of a weakness in your body is gone and we will now have a body of power. At the very least, he's talking about the power to obey God without sin. It could include all kinds of other power. Who knows how strong we'll be? Who knows how, how much stamina we'll have? Who knows how smart we'll be? Paul makes finally this, this fascinating comparison. He says... Just as the very first man, Adam, came from the earth, he was of the earth, he says earthy is the term, he was natural, he was fleshy, the human race began from him, and so we all start with that kind of a body. Because we all start from him, and that's the form he took originally, that's why we have this original form. Paul is just making a simple argument of genetics. Why do you have the body you have now? Because you came from the first man, and that's the body he started with. Simple as that. But Christ, we're told, when he came to earth, was born of a virgin, he restarted the human race. He does not trace his lineage to Adam. Not by seed. Not, not by the seed of a man. He came by the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary. So Christ's lineage does not trace back to Adam physically. That being the, not, not in a true sense. He is of a new flesh. Christ's physical container was a different container than Adam's in that It was not made of the ground. It was made by the Holy Spirit in the womb of of Mary. And it did not contain sin because he had never fallen into sin as Adam did. So he is a fundamentally different container than the one that Adam started with. He may have looked the same to you and I because we're talking here in spiritual terms, but he had a different container. From God's perspective, it was a different kind of container. And therefore, Paul says, just as our original bodies were a copy of the original man, The new body that you and I will inherit upon our resurrection will be made in the likeness of of Christ's body. That's what he means when he says those words that I read. He said, The first man is from the earth, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Those who would enter into the heavenly realm will enter in with a body in the likeness of the second Adam, of Christ himself our new body will be at least spiritually speaking in the likeness of Christ's body of his original body so in that way we will be recreated now that adds to a very that, that raises this very very interesting irony Jesus's original body was never corrupted by sin which means that when he was resurrected he didn't need a new one which is why when he was resurrected He came back in exactly the same one he had the first time. That's why Thomas could put his hands in the wounds of Christ's body. Unlike you and I, who have to have this one replaced with a new one, because this one's been corrupted, Christ went to the grave in a perfect body, perfect spiritually speaking. So there was no need for that body to be replaced, just brought back to life. So Christ was resurrected into the original body he had on the cross, which is why I say he had holes in his hands. That's why he still had a hole in his side. He went to heaven in that way. He is in that body even now. And here's the irony. When you and I are in our resurrected bodies, in his presence, in the new age to come, walking, flying, I don't know what we'll do in it, but whatever we do in it, and we come upon Christ in his body, we will have perfect bodies and he will still have wounds. He will be the only one in the new age, to have a body with any physical wounds in it. Because all of us came with a new body, whereas he came with his original, because it was never corrupted in the first place. He will live with the marks of what he did on the cross, in a body that, that shows those marks, while we will have the benefit of a body that has none, for we had the new one. But both ours and his will be of the like kind. We will both have a heavenly body, in the sense of, spiritually speaking, a pure body that can be in heaven. It's an interesting irony when you consider all the implications. So that Jesus has dealt with their issue of their lack of appreciation of the power of God. And what he said, and as we see Paul elaborate further on it, God has the power to resurrect you. And by denying the power, the fact of resurrection, you are unnecessarily limiting God's power in your mind. You're suggesting to yourself or to others that somehow God is not capable of doing the very thing he said he was willing to do and will do. Now Jesus turns to the first problem, the issue of Scripture. In verses 37 and 38, He says this, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passages about the burning bush, where He called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. So now Jesus gets to the heart of the issue here uh, in the attack made by the Sadducees. That issue is their lack of understanding of Scripture. And in this case, especially the Torah. The Torah, the first five books of Moses, or the first five books of the the Bible, the books of Moses. He says, even Moses wrote that resurrection was true. Now, that's a pretty indicting statement, because these are men who took great pride in knowing the law, in knowing what Moses had written. And he turns to them and says, Do you know, even Moses wrote about resurrection? You guys should know this. He makes clear that in Moses' writings, there was the expectation of a resurrection. Now, why is that true? How do you get that just out of his little comment here? Well, his comment here is drawn out of Exodus, a place in Exodus where God reminds Moses, as he appears to him by the burning bush, that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And there's two things, there's two ideas implicit in this statement that prove that God and that Moses, particularly, expected resurrection. First, He describes himself as the God of three men. Of Abraham, as I said, of Isaac, and of Jacob. God, when he appeared to Moses in that moment, he chose to describe himself as a God over three men who, by the time Moses heard those words, had long since died. And that tells us all we need to know about how God views the issue of resurrection. Because he wouldn't describe himself to Moses as a God of dead people unless those people were to live again before him. It makes no sense at all. He was describing himself as a God who was presently the God of those men, of those living people, indicating that they were still going to be living before him, that they had not ceased to exist. So this deals with the issue of a nihilism. To those who would say, when you die, you die, you cease to exist, that's a nihilism. This contends with that because if those three men had ceased to exist before God, why would he describe himself as a God to dead people? There's no glory in that. All men live before God, Christ says. But that's just the surface. The real depth of the answer is this. He isn't saying that God is a God who describes himself just in the sense of living relationships. He's saying God is a God who describes himself in terms of promises kept. This is an issue of a promise. This isn't just the issue of these men still being alive. It's an issue of a promise. Whenever you heard the phrase... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You and I think of it as just a list of three names. That's not what a Jew heard. When the Jew heard Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was a phrase that meant the Abrahamic covenant because there was one particular thing that tied those three men together in a very unique way, a way that did not tie any other three men together. You know, they could have just said, why didn't they say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Abraham, why didn't they just keep going? Why is it always just those three? Because those three were uniquely granted a promise called the Abrahamic Covenant. And that Abrahamic Covenant, having been given to them and to their descendants, was a promise on which the nation of Israel itself rested. You can find it repeated, as I said, to each man independently in Genesis. And I want to look at each three of those. But I want you, before we do that, I want you to understand what what element of that covenant is so important to this issue. In that covenant, God had assured each of these men that their offspring would be a great nation of people and that each of these three men, individually, as well as their offspring, would have the benefit of an internal inheritance, an inheritance of the promised land. God defined the borders of that land and he says, This is the land I am giving to you, not just to you, but to your descendants forever. Listen to the phrases. In Genesis 17, 8, he talks to Abraham and he says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then in Genesis 26, 3, he repeats it to Isaac. He says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants... I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Finally, in Genesis 28:13, he says to Jacob, after Jacob saw the ladder with the angels descending on it in that dream, then God turns to him and says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Now, why did I keep saying it that way? Because it's not just that he says, I'm going to give it to your descendants. He says, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants and you're going to keep it forever. But here's the trick. In their lifetimes, these three men never owned any more of that land than a couple of wells and a cave or two where they were buried. That's it. They never owned more than that. In their entire lifetime, they never had even a a, a fairly decent size of the promised land, much less the entire land, which God promised to them and to their descendants. So, if resurrection is not true, then the God of the Bible does not keep His word. If resurrection is not true, then these men went to their grave not seeing the promise fulfilled that they were given by God. The only way that this promise can be true and still be held to be true and God can still be faithful to it is if He resurrects them and puts them in the land as he's promised to do, which is exactly how he's going to fulfill that promise. Chapter 11 of Hebrews tells us that they they lived without having received the promises, but they died in faith knowing that God would keep that promise one day. That Abraham sacrificed his son up on the mountain, knowing that if necessary, God would resurrect him in order to keep the promises, which is why he was willing to go through with it, though God stopped him in the end. It's a faith that the resurrection would make possible a promise and that death could not stop God from keeping His promise. That's the basic point in saying, God told Moses, I'm a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a God who made a promise with those three men and I'm going to keep it. And knowing that it had never been kept in their lifetime could only mean He would do it through resurrection. He's telling them, You don't know Scripture, because if you knew your own Bible, if you understood the promises made to your own forefathers, to the nation of Israel, you'd know that He has to resurrect them. Otherwise, why believe in Him at all? He doesn't keep His promise. And then in verse 39, some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they did not have the courage to question Him any longer about anything. And so with that, Jesus has succeeded in meeting the expectations of that final inspection, of passing the test, of being found spotless, he has succeeded in proving himself a worthy sacrifice on the day to come. Now, when the scribes say, Teacher, you've spoken well, this is an important statement. It's not just the fact that they're embarrassed and that they're you know, stuck and they can't go any further. It, it is the only time we see in Scripture the leaders of the nation of Israel speaking something to him to validate the fact that he was not at fault, that he that no fault could be found in him, and make no mistake, this isn't a sarcastic statement. They're not saying it flippantly; they're saying it genuinely because they're struck, they're dumbstruck by the fact that he just addressed an issue that up till now no one had been able to answer. It's it's almost an exclamation before they realized it. You know, teacher, you've spoken well. You know, before they could stop themselves, they had complimented him, and in a way, now that it's captured in scripture, we have proof that he was not found to have any guilt. He was innocent and went to the cross that way. Now Jesus takes the offensive. And we've we got a little bit of time left. We're going to finish this chapter up. Look at what Jesus does next. He doesn't want to leave the discussion just on the fact that He could answer their stupid little questions. I mean, in the end, that's interesting, but it doesn't actually address the issue of who He is and what He's there for. There's still a fundamental issue at play. Who am I? Who do you say that I am? He wants to take the discussion into that, into that point. Jesus said, I'm not going to play your games. I want you to know the nature of the true Messiah. Regardless of what you thought, what is the true Messiah going to look like? In verse 41, he said to them, How is it that they say Christ is David's son? For David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? Uh, the question that he asked the leaders here to answer comes from language found in Psalms 110. Now, if you remember back a few days, we talked about Psalms 118 at one point when Jesus quoted out of that psalm earlier in the same chapter. We said Psalm 118 is a well-known messianic psalm. So is Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 110 is even more famous in that regard. In their day, just as it is in our day, Psalm 110, you say Psalm 110 to a theologian, they say messianic psalm. That was a psalm filled with references to what the coming Messiah would be like. So he quotes from that very well-known psalm. And he all, it was also widely known and widely accepted that this psalm was written by David. In fact, in your book, if you, in your Bible, if you went and you paged over to Psalm 110, it probably starts with a psalm of David. That's not part of the psalm, but it's credited to David because that was widely understood to be the case. So Jesus asks them, how is it that the Messiah who would be a son of David, a descendant of David in other words, would call his own son, Lord. Now, he's referencing here some other scripture. He's referencing Isaiah 9, and he's referencing Jeremiah 33. Those are chapters that tell us that the Messiah, wherever he came, whoever he was, would come from David's line, would be a descendant of David, the root of Jesse. So, those... When he says, how is it, if he is David's son, that he would call him Lord? He's saying, we know he was going to be David's son. Scripture tells us that. But then we have this psalm that also tells us that David himself called his Messiah Lord. How is it that that this man would call his own descendant Lord? And what he's referring to there, of course, is that in the Eastern culture, patriarchal behavior and patriarchal thinking being what it was, no father would ever call his own descendant Lord. That would be like the President of the United States turning in the Oval Office to the lowest aide in the room and calling him Sir. You would never see that happen. Protocol would never allow for that. It would be an awkward moment. The the, the aide would turn to the President and say, Mr. President, please don't call me Sir. Right. Similarly in their culture, the son of a father in the Hebrew culture would never be called Lord by the father. And yet that's how David addresses... The Messiah, a man we know, must descend from David. So he puts the question back to these religious leaders. How is that possible? The only way it could happen would be if this person to come as the Messiah was someone much greater than just a man. This person who was to come must be something completely different than just the ordinary man that the leaders expected, the conquering king, the, the, the super Pharisee. It had to be something much different than that. And, of course, that's why they had rejected him out of hand. They weren't ready for that kind of a Messiah. They wanted the more regular kind, the everyday Messiah, if you will. And now Jesus makes the application, because, of course, they couldn't answer that question. And he makes the application to the crowd in verses 45 through 47. He says, while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. We're told in Scripture he was speaking to the disciples while all the people were listening. But it's clear, he's talking to the disciples. He says, beware of these men, which literally in the Greek means be on guard against them. Watch out for them. Be be careful. Don't get involved with them is sort of the implication. These men are the problem, basically. These, these religious leaders. He gives a reason why you should be aware, but you've got to look at each one in detail just for a minute because what he builds here is a picture of men in ministry generally, in, in Jesus' day specifically, but I think in general, that you need to watch out for in ministry. First, he says that there are essentially chief sins associated with these men. There's basically three sins in play here. He, he begins by listing four characteristics of the first sin. First, he mentions that they walk around in long robes. That doesn't sound like a problem, does it? Except that in their culture, the longer your robe, the more honor you were due. Think of it like a wedding train. You know, you often measure the the degree of of honor for the bride or the degree of opulence for the wedding or the degree of, of, of money basically being spent on how big the train of the wedding dress is. Like... Princess Di had one. She was walking up to the altar. I think the back of her dress was still around the street corner, right? That's, that's a sign of just how much honor she was due. That's the idea. So they, likewise, used to lengthen the tassels on their garments, lengthen the, their robes beyond what was normal. They would kind of one-up one another. The intent here is to do what? To make themselves look more honorable to people. And he goes on, and that's the, the, the other characteristics of that sin are they loved respectful greetings. They would seek them out. This is the idea of, I'm going to walk a little closer to this person so that when they're forced to greet me, I'll receive the benefit of them kind of you know, praising me and, and, and just lavishing me with their praises and, their, and, their, uh, and I'll receive the honor of that greeting. They love to sit in the honored places in the synagogues. This is the custom that Jesus criticizes elsewhere in one of the Gospels where the men would come in, they would reserve the best, or no, James, I'm sorry, in James' letter, he talks about how the honored places in the synagogue would be reserved for the men who had the most money, or in this case, in the men who were the most important politically or religiously. And they would intentionally, you know the, the, the idea of arriving fashionably late They would often wait until most of the synagogue was filled so that they could walk in and essentially parade past everyone else and take the honored seats and everyone could watch them sit in the honored seat. And then finally, they loved to sit at the places of honor at banquets. Remember from the story we told when Jesus went in in chapter 14, and sat at the table in the, in the Pharisees' home, and it was that honored moment where the, the disciples were fighting over each other to get to the honored places around the table, and Jesus says, Don't choose the place of honor, sit at the end, and then if you're invited up, you'll receive honor from the host. Remember that scene we talked about? It's in that way. They, would, they wanted to sit at the honored place in those tables. What do all four of these characteristics or all of these behaviors have in common? All of these are symptoms of pride. So the first sin that's characteristic of the kind of men Christ tells the disciples to beware of because, number one, of their pride. They're taking pride in their earthly, fleshly, religious accomplishments. And they're taking pride before men, not before God. They are seeking the praises of men rather than seeking after God's righteousness, seeking after the approval of God. And they earn a righteousness of their own making. In, in the eyes of those people. He says, avoid them for their pride. So a lesson for us, is before we move to the next one, is as you see men in, in positions of ministry or in positions of leadership in the church, check them for their pride. Now that is not to say that they have to be without pride. I don't know that that's possible necessarily. But it should be the case that their motivations out of their desire to serve and out of the work they do and out of the way that they respond in their ministry should never seem to be motivated, primarily or otherwise, on the basis of how they are seen in the eyes of men. If they are doing things or saying things in such a way that we are left with a distinct impression that they care more about what we think of them than what God thinks of them, you're dealing with a pride issue and God says, beware of men like that in a leadership position. Secondly, Christ moves on to their second sin when he mentions how they devour widows' houses. Now, we don't have a lot of background on what this means, of course. He just talks about it in passing. But it's not too hard to see what he's referring to here. In ancient cultures, the widow was a particularly vulnerable member of society, maybe the most vulnerable. There were very few social structures to support that person in any way. So she would often be dependent on the generosity of either family, which may or may may not be there, or religious organizations, the religious structures of the day. And Jesus is suggesting here that these men who would be so greedy that they would go to women who are the most vulnerable in society and have the least defense, and still they would care more about that widow's money and for their own selfish reasons abuse that widow than they would to care for her. Basically, these men had a sin of greed, an extreme form of it. And the application there is pretty simple. Ministry is not a means to personal gain in any way. That's not to say you shouldn't be able to earn a living at it. The worker is worthy of his hire. But that should not mean that 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 person's motivation is driven first and foremost by their desire to make financial gain out of their ministry. Finally, they offer long prayers for appearance's sake. You know, these were prayers that would be so detailed in their content. They'd have so many scripture references. Remember, these men memorized the entire Old Testament in many cases. They would pull out long passages of scripture and incorporate it into their prayer and it would just go on and on and on. And the whole event was orchestrated to impress people to impress you as to their own knowledge and to their own ability to pray. It wasn't so much a prayer as it was a performance. And in that performance, these men were demonstrating hypocrisy. So hypocrisy was the third sin, the third thing to be concerned about here, that they would, rather than do things out of a genuine heart of serving God and God's people, they did it out of an attempt to make themselves look better to essentially say one thing but do another, to tell you what you should believe while they themselves did not hold it in their own hearts. And that's the real lesson here to the disciples. Don't be like these men. Not just beware of them, but don't use them as your model. That's a challenging statement to them because these are gentlemen, who, the disciples, who grew up in a culture where that's the only kind of religious leader they'd ever seen. That was it. They didn't have like a variety of models to choose from unless you count John the Baptist and Christ himself, of course. Otherwise, it was the Pharisees, scribes, Herodians, and Sadducees. That's it. He says, don't be like any of them. You've got to break the mold in your mind about what the right model is. And in just a few hours, Jesus was going to be off the scene and these were the guys that were going to take over the church and they had to establish the new model and they had to understand what mattered to God. So what kind of leaders are we looking for in this church or in any church for that matter, anywhere we go? We've got to understand that we're looking for men leading in God's church who do not carry pride into that accomplishment but humility. They don't seek the praises of men, they seek the praises of God which would mean at many times and in many cases having to say things that people don't like because it's what God himself would say, so to speak, through his word. He should never reduce his calling and ministry into a financial pursuit, much less be willing to take advantage of those under his care for financial gain. And he should never teach one thing and do another, at least to the extent that he can live his life according to scripture, never turning his ministry into a performance. I see evidences of that kind, those kinds of mistakes being made pretty much anywhere you go these days, but maybe barring a few fortunate churches. You'll either find men for fin- seeking after financial gain, men propping themselves up in the eyes of other men for the purpose of performing and, and building up their own pride, men who would simply say one thing and do another. How many men have fallen in ministry of late for that very reason? This is the kind of problem that when it reaches into the depths of the church, into the church leadership, doesn't just bring them down. It brings down the faithful in their confidence in their leadership and in their willingness to serve within the church, in their trust for the Word of God itself. And certainly as a witness to the world, it makes them think we're just as messed up as they are. If we will do the two things right that Christ said the Sadducees were doing wrong, I'm confident we can avoid those problems. No scripture... And know the power of God to do what He wills will be good. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You tonight for the patience of those who would listen, for the opportunity to gather with them in Your Word, and for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Father, we know that we are all guilty at one time or another of many of these same things. But Father, knowing that that is not Your desire and that we are called out of it, we pray, Father, that it would never mark a pattern in our life. That a momentary fall or or step backward is one thing but a life devoted to sin in these ways is quite another we pray father that in all that we do you would convict us in such a way that we would see that line and not cross it that we would repent of those times when we do and father we would uh, at all times seek after your word and we would appeal to your power knowing the great work you can do father through us and and even despite us in many cases we thank you father that we've been brought back to that knowledge tonight in this study we I look forward to a continuation, Father, according to your will in the weeks to come. May you draw other men and women who desire to know your word into this room and onto the Internet to study with us. And, Father, we pray that for what we have learned, we would be prepared to put it into great use in our lives and in the daily walk we live. For it is not for the purpose of knowledge that we come, Father, but for the purpose of serving you in a Christlike way. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.